welcome to Wireless Future. Um, my name is Eric Larsson and I'm here as always with my colleague Emil Björnsson. Hello Emil, how are you this morning? I'm great. It's good to be back after the summer break. How are you? In, indeed, thank you. So I think this is episode 32. It is. Is that correct Emil? Yes. That's amazing. Power of two will happen exponentially less frequently, <laughs> I think. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Um, um, so today we are delighted to have a very special guest on the show, uh, Giuseppe Kaira um, from TU Berlin. And Giuseppe is the uh, Alexander von Humboldt professor at TU Berlin. He's a top information theorist that I believe many in the audience know. He's a fellow of the IEEE and has won numerous awards for his work and I think is fair to say one of the rare intellectuals in the information theory field who has contributed not only to theory but also to practice of actual systems. Um, so hello Giuseppe, how are things in Berlin? Great to have you on the, on the show. Yeah, things are great in Berlin and thank you for inviting me to this wonderful show. <laughs> <laughs> all right very good so i guess the way we're gonna run this is that i mean we're recording this all remotely and emil and i will be firing questions and stimulating discussion with you and um, i thought that we could perhaps start off with a bit of retrospect because you giuseppe are a pioneer of multi-user mimo information theory and um, specifically, you're behind some of the underpinning results behind the capacity region of the um, MIMO, uh, multi-user MIMO um, broadcast channel uh, back, I think, even in the late 90s. And uh, I would be curious to know, um, in that light, did MIMO and especially multi-user MIMO, which is now in, um, I think, in modern terminology, massive MIMO, <laughs> did it all turn out as you thought? Or how would you describe the history here, if you could give some perspective on that? Well, it's, uh, I have to say, uh, the at the time where uh, Shlomo Shamai and I uh, started working on this uh, multi-antenna broadcast channel, the main motivation was uh, purely information theoretical. Uh, it, it was uh, an example of a non-degraded broadcast channel, uh, which is generally an uh, open problem in information theory. But uh, anyway, because of the structure, the geometric structure, the, the Gaussian nature of the channel is it, it turned out to be tractable. Uh, we got the first uh, little result on um, proving um, some rate for two users, then uh, other people followed on and uh, extended the result to a full understanding of the capacity region for this uh, for this model. And this, I think it was a very exciting result from a theoretical viewpoint. I have to say that uh, at that time, I didn't uh, really see how big the impact uh, would have been in a, in a few years uh, uh, to go because uh, the, the, the big, I think that the, the really um, turning point for this was uh, 
realizing that uh, one can acquire channel state information using TDD reciprocity. Uh, at the mm. time, people didn't believe that uh, this is a practical and viable uh, thing to do. There were a lot of uh, works claiming that uh, uh, reciprocal radios are too expensive, too difficult to do. One has to do calibration. And all these problems were uh, eventually solved in very clever ways. And then, of course, with the paper by uh, Tom Marzetta uh, that uh, basically uh, showed that uh, uh, you don't need these complicated techniques um, that achieve the capacity. You can approach the capacity in, the con in a certain conditions of when you have a, a lot of uh, base station antennas and the, the channels are sufficiently well behaved. Uh, it turns out that uh, linear processing is uh, essentially good enough. Mm. And all this combined uh, created this incredible development that uh, now I would say multi-user MIMO is a cornerstone of the modern Wi-Fi schemes, of the modern 5G schemes. Uh, and and uh, in fact, in a certain sense, has completely shifted the attention uh, from so-called point-to-point MIMO or space-time coding, as it was called in the in the, the 90s, in the mid-90s, Alamuti and all these things geared to achieve diversity and protection against fading for the single user channel. Now we know that uh, uh, you know the wireless channel can be exploited in, in basically manufacturing dimensions in the space domain and then blow up the capacity of wireless by orders of magnitude, which is really, uh, I would say, uh, an, an amazing, an amazing development. Too. So at the time, I have to confess, I, I haven't seen these all the way. It seemed a little bit science fictional uh, and and uh, complicated, uh, subject to, you know, perfect channel state information assumptions, uh, and all these problems have been, you know, progressively removed. Uh, to to go to more and more practical design, which now we all enjoy in in modern systems. Right. Well, perhaps as you suggested, I mean the insight that multi-user MIMO systems should operate in TDD and exploit reciprocity might have been the most important one in really making full use or exploiting the potential of multi-user MIMO fully. Um, I would probably want to add also to this discussion that, to my understanding, uh, the development of microelectronics also has um, progressed enormously over the last two decades. And as you suggested, I mean, some of these things seemed almost like science fiction, perhaps at the end of the 90s, early 2000, which are built today and deployed in commercial systems. And some of that is due to advances in algorithms and understanding of the actual communication theory, the insight that we should go TDD, reciprocity rather than FDD and so forth. But some of it, I believe, is also simply owing to the progress of circuits and systems that we can build in hardware, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, uh, I, I remember that uh, one of the major criticisms uh, uh, at the time was that calculating in real time recording matrices to basically eliminate interference at the transmitter side in the downlink uh, was too expensive. 
and uh, and now this is done for relatively large systems, a relatively large number of users, uh, and even uh, you know we have eight FPGAs that uh, do this calculation in floating points. So. Uh, in real time, it almost no power time, consumption yeah. at all. I mean, it's just amazing. I think. Yeah, it's absolutely. Uh, another, yeah, another point you mentioned was the. Um, I mean, in the early days of multiple antenna systems, there was, I think, some notion that uh, diversity would be more important than the multiplexing capabilities, and that notion underpinned i believe some of the development of space-time codes and space-time yeah. block codes in particular but now with wideband systems there isn't much of a i mean point perhaps to seek all this diversity not to mention with massive MIMO where we have all the uh, i mean this the, the multiplexing itself there has been a cultural shift which is also probably due to the fact that systems have become more and more wideband and multi-carrier. Uh, in the old days, uh, the fading was a foe, and uh, and this is also uh, understandable when you have, a, like in a GSM, you have a 200 kilohertz uh, bandwidth and essentially a single carrier system, and you have a deep fade, you lose a packet, and uh, and this was the, the main concern. So diversity, you know, all the emphasis on Alamuti code and space-time codes were essentially trading off spectral efficiency for robustness against fading. And now, of course, when you have a, 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 a large number of subcarriers, frequency selectivity, uh, all sorts of uh, powerful coding techniques, including rate adaptation, and, uh, this emphasis on diversity has been uh, progressively decreased while the emphasis on multiplexing gain and is, has become much more important. I mean, the only possible exception might be systems that are still uh, really narrow band, right? Uh, certain IoT perhaps or sensor networks or emerging yes, yes, very specific. Exactly. Uh, mm. systems and deployments where you just have all this bandwidth and the frequency diversity that it brings right. uh, with it. So I think here we have one of good examples of how information theory has really been very useful. So I was in the conversation with an antenna engineer some month ago claiming that the way to designing future networks is that we look at what antennas and hardware can be built today and we try to as communication engineers build something out of it but uh, i think this is sort of showing how you with with theory can predict what will be possible in the future and then wait until the point where antenna engineers can actually build the things that we, we were envisioning and that this is really what leads to to big long-term gains so speaking a bit about mimo then what do you think is the next thing we have talked in the podcast about distributed or cell-free MIMO, is, is this the next thing to go for? Ah, well, in, who knows, right? It's a, uh, certainly cell-free and distributed uh, antenna systems uh, in, is, uh, is a trend, at least theoretically, uh, is the next thing, is uh, like going finally uh, beyond the cellular architecture. Um, it has a lot of, uh, I would say, nice 
features uh, in terms of uh, uniform quality, uh, uh, you know, all these applications about about uh, low delay. Every every time you have a handover in in a, in a cellular system, you have a big spike in 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 delays and. Uh, uh, in 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 a cell-free architecture, you, it should be more like a seamless situation where a user is always at the center of its, its cluster. Um, it has also a lot of uh, uh, problems. Uh, I would say theoretical, but also practical problems in uh, uh, rethinking uh, uh, a lot of procedures. For example, how you do initial acquisition in a cell-free system where uh, all, all, all initial acquisition today are based on, uh, basically are, are base station driven. The, the base station broadcasts a beacon and a user listen. Uh, if all the radio has in a, in a, in a distributed, uh, say cell-free system will do the same, there will be a total cacophony of beacons. And uh, so maybe, I don't know, going to a user driven, user initiated initial acquisition, who knows? Um, where you put the computation uh, in a distributed fashion, you have these distributed uh, decentralized units, but then may, may, there may be some very interesting connections with uh, what uh, computer science is doing in terms of uh, 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 software-defined network functions. Maybe every cluster processor, as every user-centric cluster processor could be a software-defined network function that migrates uh, across the decentralized processing units as the user moves, uh, and so there may be a very interesting connections with the, with the uh, computer science and distributed computing. Um, uh, so this is certainly a, a direction that uh, you know we, we know a lot uh, on cell-free at the signal processing level. I think that at the level of the whole architecture, there is still a lot of work to do. Mm. Uh, yeah, another, yeah, yeah. Mm. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would say also another direction uh, is uh, that uh, is uh, is going to higher and higher frequencies because uh, it's there is a clear trend, at least in the, in the, in the uh, what people are expecting that the, you know as we move uh, say five G beyond five G six G, people are exploring higher and higher. Uh, uh, frequency, uh, uh, carrier frequencies and, 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 and larger and larger uh, 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 signal bandwidths. And then at some point, uh, you know, things change. Like for example, up to a certain point, uh, uh, the, 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 the problem is not anymore um, sort of joint processing uh, at the basement level because doing basement processing when you have like 10 gigahertz of bandwidth, uh, it can be very, very difficult. At the same time, propagation becomes more like a, a ray of lights, so the line of sight. Uh, but at, the, at this point, architectures like uh, cell-free would be very useful to counter the blocking problem. Uh, you can simultaneously uh, uh, beam form for, from different uh, 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 radio heads and, and have a sort of macro diversity effect for the blocking problem, which at uh, frequencies like subterrors becomes very important. A little bit in the direction of like visible light communication, uh, uh, where the blocking problem is one of the 
the, 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 the major problems. Uh, so there may be some, some, uh, some directions that are yet uh, unexplored in, 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 you know, in this sort of distributed architectures for, for higher frequencies. Mm. Yeah, these are interesting points. I mean, the fact that once you go up very high in frequency, then propagation becomes all or nothing style, like either you have line of sight or you, you, you have nothing because you're blocked. And then it seems to me that there, I mean, there won't be much of gains from coherent processing across the access points. And we're kind of like back to almost like a cellular system, right, where you connect to the closest, maybe best access point, and then you need a way of managing interference and mobility. Uh, but you also mentioned, I think, another thing which is very important to take home with regard to cell-free and distributed architectures, and that is that, uh, particularly in academic work, I mean, there, there's a, lots of studies that look at like how to do joint coherent signal processing and beamforming and so forth, but in practice there is a host of other problems that we have to solve initial access, as you mentioned and um, how to send beacon signals in a way that uh, scales also when you deploy more and more densely the the um, the access points uh, so certainly there seems to be a field of research which is still ripe for uh, contributions uh, which is good to know um, that said i mean the ideas of, of self free massive mimo i think have been around for some time and there are even also prototype and, and semi-commercial implementations. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of the P-cell concept developed by I think Artemis Networks, mm -hmm. Giuseppe. Yeah. Could you speak to that and explain I mean a little bit how far is this Artemis or P-cell system from what we really think of as cell-free massive MIMO and exactly what's going on there, what are the limitations, how well does this scale, because scalability is a major issue, not to say the major issue, I think, in, in any right. MIMO or cell-free architecture. So I have been following Artemis uh, since their infancy, uh, when uh, I was still uh, in Los Angeles at the time, and I was contacted by uh, Steve Perlman, the CEO, and Antonio Forenza, uh, at the time was the CEO of the company. Antonio was uh, 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 my undergraduate student when I was in France, and then he moved to uh, the US, and then eventually he did his PhD in Texas. Um, so it's it's a it's a very interesting company that came up with a very clever uh, implementation. Uh, at the beginning, was uh, based on uh, LTE. Now is supporting five G uh, of a distributed, uh, uh, let's say, multi-user MIMO system with distributed antennas. Um, uh, it's a uh, I would say uh, is the system is uh, proprietary in the sense that uh, I don't think that uh, it is like ORAN compliant. So that their radio heads uh, and uh, and the processing units are do not fully uh, comply with the interoperability requirement of Open RAN. 
uh, it's very clever engineer. Um, uh, the, the radio heads are really small and cheap, and uh, they they can be attached to a Ethernet backbone. Um, they get uh, power over Ethernet. So uh, I do not know all the details, all the technical details. Uh, of course, the principles are uh, what we all know. So it's uh, TDD, reciprocity, um, with distributed calibration. They, they solved a lot of interesting problems, a lot of practical interesting problems, while remaining completely compatible with uh, um, uh, you know, user devices that are, are, are of course, untouched. So uh, LTE and 5G user devices. Uh, and they have really compelling performance uh, uh, experiments and, and measures and, and demonstrations. Um, I have the, the impression that the system is geared to cover um, a relatively large but localized area, like for example, a soccer stadium, a football stadium, uh, a shopping mall, uh, uh, airport uh, hall, uh, providing of course, a really high spectral efficiency and very good performances for users with uh, limited mobility, like uh, nomadic users, or imagine like the 60,000 people uh, attending a, a football match who wants to, at the same time, uh, uh, have uh, camera views of, uh, of the action and maybe share some pictures and, and do their uh, texting or, or, or something like that. And, and they have examples where they, they have compared with respect to distributed antenna systems from uh, legacy uh, uh, ISPs and, and uh, the classical Wi-Fi deployment. And of course, these sort of joint processing of all of the radio heads uh, provides uh, a large advantage. Uh, I'm not sure that the system would scale at the level of uh, like a urban coverage. Uh, uh, the scalability and uh, handling mobility uh, is maybe not yet there. Maybe it's not even in the in the plans of the of the company because clearly the, this is a, a small company that has uh, eventually identified this niche market of super dense uh, areas with uh, very high spectral efficiency, especially with a very large number of users because the problem there is really the number of users. At those level of density of users, uh, uh, even the best Wi-Fi systems uh, collapse mm. and, and they start you know, being interference limited and, uh, and mm. there are not enough channels, there are too many collisions and, uh, and we all have the experience of uh, trying to connect uh, in, a, in a conference hall and uh, when you have more than 40 people attached to a router, uh, uh, it, it becomes a problem. So, yeah. So I think that it is, it's, it's, it is a big step. It is a nice technology, uh, competitive and cost-effective for certain applications. I don't think that uh, uh, this is uh, yet to the point of scaling to like a urban coverage with the, to re like replace a cellular system. It would be more like a complement to a cellular mm -hmm. system. Yeah, it's interesting to know. Uh, I think you mentioned here two itty 
where exter- where it's uh, really what defines the limitations right of of cell free or wireless in general scalability and and mobility mm-hmm. uh, mobility because of, of course the limited coherence during which we have to learn the channels and all that but also because of at some point you'll we'll need a handover from an access point to the next or from a cluster of access points to the next or from a access points connected to some central unit to access point connected to some other central unit and so forth and and scalability because at some point i mean you just can't grab all the data and process it at one location right you you, you'll have to break up the system and there will be natural like partitionings and then the question is how should these partitionings interact with one another Uh, worst case is that they operate autonomously and then they will just become like big cells and then where you you are in in the middle in right in between of two of them you will be essentially what you'll have is like a multi-cell conventional system where you see interference from other parts of the system that you can't control or deal with so yeah um Um, in a way i think this is good news that we seem to agree that not all of these (laughs) problems are solved because it means that we still got something to do right so what do you say emil (laughs) yes and Going back to this uh, sort of going from predictions and information theory to actually building things in reality, I think you were mentioning your seminal work with Shlomo Shammai before. I think in 2001, he was writing an information theory paper about co-processing of base stations, which is sort of also predicting the gains of distributed MIMO systems. And, uh, And now we are seeing how we are step-by-step solving different kinds of practical issues in order to implement these type of things here and maybe the the gain are bigger but also the challenges are even larger in these situations uh, when it comes to scalability and all of these type of things but uh, yeah yeah so so but that would be interesting to know i mean giuseppe your view on like if we look into the future um how far are we or what are the real fundamental limits of what MIMO technology be it co-located or distributed or, or, or some combination mm-hmm. can do for us I mean how many uh, how large like antenna arrays do you think we'll mm-hmm. ever see we are now I think <laughs> in commercial products for like 5G we're at something like 100 or 128 maybe mm-hmm. Will we ever see arrays that are usefully built and deployed with a thousand elements, with ten thousand? With <laughs> um, where yeah. is there like a limit where you say no? Now we hit the limit where I mean, just just make hypothetically think that extra additional hardware came at no ad- additional cost. Mm. So microelectronics could be built. Would there be like a limit imposed by physics and information theory that dictates how large arrays would ever be useful? It's like, well, if you could build an array with a thousand antennas, then information theory would tell us that there is no point. Even if it came for free, there would be no point in building an array that's twice as large. Could you elaborate on like how you think about this is there a limit to when MIMO doesn't become useful any longer right or... right this is a very interesting problem uh, that uh, requires uh, uh, I mean it requires a discussion at multiple levels so basically the, 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 the philosophical point here is that uh, the at some point, models that we use will break, right? Uh, for example, uh, uh, if, if you reason at a fixed lambda, so say fixed carrier frequency, 
it means that uh, the uh, size of the array will grow linearly with the number of antennas or, or you know whatever if it is a linear array or is it is it is a, is a panel is a, like a planar array but anyway you increase the number of elements the size of the array increases and when the size of the array increases then we have to consider the fact that uh, uh, most of the uh, our channel modeling uh, is mainly based on a, like a far field hypothesis right and and uh, at some point this far field uh, hypothesis doesn't doesn't hold anymore because um, because precisely because the size of the array increases. Um, well, that's certainly true. Uh, I mean that the far field assumption would bre break apart, but at the same time, I mean it, it, I do agree that some channel models are based on a far field assumption, but beamforming and processing algorithms by no means need to be based on an assumption of a particular propagation model. So there is no reason for why TDD-based or reciprocity-based massive MIMO beamforming say should not work if you're in the near field. Well, there will be, there will be for example, effects like uh, when, when the, the, the signal that propagates across the array, you know, the, the, the delay of propagating across the array becomes significant with respect to the... Um, uh, let's say to the inverse of the bandwidth, then uh, uh, just the array itself becomes frequency selective, but just 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 by that, right? So uh, we have to reconsider certain things. It's not just that uh, you scale the number of antennas and everything remains the same. Uh, the, there are uh, the the, the, the uh, philosophical questions about the inherent degrees of freedom of the channel, for which, for example, if you keep scaling the number of antennas and and if you keep scaling the number of antennas without scaling the number of users simultaneously served is a little bit of a waste. Uh, uh, we already know mm. from, from yes. uh, Massive MIMO that when the number of antennas is about 10 times the number of users, somehow you reach a plateau. So you scale them at the same time. At some point, there may be some other elements that limit your degrees of freedom. For example, the rank of the channel matrix may be limited by the richness of the scattering. Uh, and... and uh, um, and, and then we have this philosophical question of whether the scattering is inherently discrete or is inherently continuous. Because if you have a diffuse scattering, you, you, know, you keep uh, uh, getting more and more and more degrees of freedom, right? Uh, uh, but if you have a discrete scattering, at some point, the rank uh, of the channel becomes limited. By uh, by this number of discrete scatterers, and and so uh, we 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 enter a, a regime. At some point, we enter regimes that are, are not taken into account by the models that we somehow give for granted, and uh, and and so this requires a reconsideration of the models. And, and once you reconsider the models, then uh, one can come up with the reasonable. Uh, and, and, and meaningful fundamental limits because uh, otherwise uh, it, it's easy to go to misleading conclusions, right? Um, like, uh, you know, people uh, conclude in the past, came up with all sorts of conclusions that were based on models that make sense in a certain regime but becomes meaningless in other regimes. But for example, typical example was 
the overemphasized so-called uh, uh, multi-user diversity, the, the fact that one could schedule users at the peak of their fading and achieve uh, 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 enormous gains because uh, every now and then you have a big peak uh, uh, because the fading is, uh, say, a chi-square you know, variable. I mean, the, 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 the magnitude square of the channel gain, and this has an infinite tail, and then but okay, this is all good. All these order statistics are very elegant, but sorry, uh, these fading models make sense when you look close to the mean. When you close to, in a large deviation sense, it doesn't make any sense because there is no way the channel can amplify the signal, it's a passive channel. So uh, then you get to like, uh, you know, conclusions are mathematically correct, but on, on the premises of looking at the model and exploiting the model in some, you know, in a regime that is not the, the regime that justifies that model. So we have to be very careful in drawing conclusions out of models without rediscussing the, the models. Then there is another, another uh, maybe another answer here is uh, uh, what happens if in contrast, instead of uh, keeping lambda fixed, uh, we consider uh, uh, smaller and smaller lambda. So we go to millimeter waves and subterrors, and then effectively, uh, the number of array elements can become extremely large without changing you know, the physical size of the arrays because we go up in frequency. And then uh, in this case, I would say uh, it is uh, possible, it is potentially possible to, to go to an extremely large number of radiating elements but the antenna architecture will be different. It is probably some form of clever uh, hybrid uh, uh, technology for which you have like what is called software defined uh, uh, antennas. So sub arrays that already synthesize clever patterns maybe in the RF domain directly uh, and then a limited number of RF chains that can be sampled and uh, uh, this will seems to be become now um, mainstream direction and and I, I have no difficulty in seeing this this type of development and when we go to like terrors and you need a large an, uh, antenna gate you may have these sub arrays with, with uh, really hundreds and hundreds of elements but then uh, the first layer of processing will be done in in the RF domain and then uh, uh, somehow there is a sort of projection from a very high dimensional, uh, uh, space to a lower dimensional space, and then uh, we can we can you know sample lower dimensional space uh, and then do basement processing at that level. So this is also a possibility. Yeah, that's a fascinating point indeed um, to maintain the aperture size, but rather shrink the wavelength. Right? I mean, I think previously when I've thought of like fundamental limits of MIMO, I have had the mindset that, well, we'll keep the carry frequency wavelength fixed and we scale up the size of the array. And then as you suggested, I mean, beyond some point, unless we multiplex more users, then the payoff will be only logarithmical because the only gain we get is from the array processing or the beamforming gain, right? And in turn, the number of users or terminals that we can multiplex will be related to how much coherence we have available so that we can learn their channels and so right. forth. But I think the problem you suggest here now 
to rather fix the physical size of the aperture and see, well, how small can we make the wavelength and how should we then correspondingly build such arrays with <laughs> tinier and tinier antennas. That's a fascinating thing that, uh, again, I think uh, there are lots of open, interesting and, and relevant problems here that we're touching upon. What do you mm. say, Emil? Yeah, I think you're onto something important here that, that also struck me in the last few months that usually when we are going up in frequency, we are thinking, oh, we will do this to get more bandwidth. But as you were saying, if you have a certain aperture size and you are squeezing in more antennas, you get more degrees of freedom because you go up in frequency. You don't need to have more bandwidth if you get more degrees of freedom and you can do spatial multiplexing using those ones. So, so that might be a dimension that we haven't explored as deeply as just a simple thing of getting more bandwidth. So maybe we should move on and talk about something else for a moment that is not exactly MIMO related. So, I mean, a lot of our systems today are built on OFDM or orthogonal frequency division multiplexing. And then we have got a lot of requests to talk about uh, this alternative method called OTFS or orthogonal Mm. time frequency space. And then uh, I don't know this uh, topic that much, but since I saw that you have written a paper recently called OTFS versus OFDM in the presence of sparsity, a fair comparison, I was thinking that you would be the ideal person to ask about this. So, so what is OTFS? Uh, do we get some new degrees of freedom from using this compared to OFDM or are we just chopping up the same old degrees of freedom in a different way? Yeah, that's that's a fascinating question because OTFS is one of those uh, things that was proposed by a startup, I think. And, and uh, uh, the way it was proposed, uh, as usual in the startup language, is always a little bit over the top. Uh, and uh, the matter of the fact is that uh, OTFS is uh, just another multi-carrier modulation system. The, 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 the main thing is that, uh, uh, okay, there, there, there is, you know, we, we are used to the time frequency plane for uh, OFDM. We, we have time, we have frequency, and we can imagine the OFDM symbols as a sort of tiling of this plane with uh, with symbols and 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 each symbol is a degree of freedom let's say in the sigma space roughly speaking we know that the number of degrees of freedom for a signal that spans a certain a certain frequency a certain bandwidth w and lasts for a certain duration t is the product wt so we imagine this as a sort of grid and the OFDM is able to fill this grid with time frequency symbols. Uh, if you do a, a, a two-dimensional Fourier transform, uh, uh, frequency uh, becomes delay, the dual domain is delay, time is uh, uh, Doppler. Um, and, and so you go to, a, to another, uh, say, domain, which is the Doppler delay domain. Uh, and OTFS is essentially placing symbols in the Doppler delay domain and then converting it into the time frequency plane using this symplectic Fourier transform, which is a inverse Fourier transform for Doppler to time and direct Fourier transform from, 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 from delay to frequency. And then it's modulating the thing. Uh, there are a, a little bit of 
you know, uh, details here and there that I will omit here. But the main point is that uh, one can go back to the Doppler delay domain uh, at the receiver. And, uh, and then uh, this representation of the signal it becomes uh, quite effective when the channel is essentially the, the, the superposition of a relatively small number of uh, uh, say multipath components and every component is a delay and a Doppler shift. So imagine uh, the classical two-ray model. You, you have uh, two delays and two Doppler shifts, right? If the two delays are far, uh, so the delay spread is large and the Doppler spread is large, when you see the channel transfer function in the time frequency plane is a very time and frequency selective transfer function. You see something that changes a lot in the time and frequency. So this becomes very hard to estimate in uh, using, let's say, conventional wisdom. A conventional wisdom in OFDM is uh, placing uh, some pilots at the beginning or at some point uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a comb of frequencies and assume that the, the channel will not change uh, across an, uh, an OFDM block. Uh, so uh, in contrast, the channel is uh, parametrically depends only on for, let's say four coefficient, two delays and, and, and two Doppler shifts, or, or maybe two, because you just, uh, in fact, after uh, time recovery and frequency recovery, you just need the difference. So uh, it is an extremely simple channel in the Doppler delay domain, but it can be seen as a very complicated, uh, highly time and frequency selective channel in the, the uh, time frequency domain. So what we did in this paper was to consider channels of this type, so channels that are uh, formed by a small number of multipath components, but their uh, uh, Doppler spread and delay spread can be large. Uh, that's why we call it in the presence of sparsity, is the sparse, it's a channels that are sparse in the Doppler delay domain. But then uh, uh, we don't use a, a, we didn't consider a, conventional wisdom OFDM channel estimation, uh, because at that point, what you can do with OFDM is to basically uh, structure channel estimation as a compressed sensing problem. So you are trying to estimate something that is uh, sparse in a, in a domain, but you see a projection through the piloting scheme in another domain, and in between, there is a Fourier matrix. Uh, if you do this, basically the, the, the best pilot configuration is like a, a random distribution of pilots in the whole time frequency plane, and then use compressed sensing to, to estimate the channel. And it turns out that uh, uh, in, uh, if one does things uh, in, 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 in this way, the difference between the two systems is extremely small in the sense that uh, they pretty much perform the same. Uh, the, there is a like a slight gain in of OTFS in the sense that uh, it does not uh, use cyclic prefix at every symbol. If they use only like a guard time uh, over the blocks, but this of course comes at the cost of a larger uh, processing uh, uh, complexity. So uh, the, the cyclic prefixing of OFDM makes uh, makes the 
processing very simple. Um, so at the end, uh, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. I don't think that there is a, a, a real winner. Uh, OTFS seems to be a bit better in terms of performances, a bit more spectral efficient, but uh, requires more complexity uh, in, the, in, the, in the detector, uh, OFDM, uh, when OFDM is designed to handle these, uh, uh, say, time-varying channels uh, with a, a correct piloting scheme and the correct uh, uh, channel estimation scheme and not the naive one that uh, uh, is, uh, performs very decently also. Um, uh, of course, if one applies OFDM with the piloting scheme and the channel estimation scheme that are specified today in the assumption of no significant channel variations across uh, um, a resource block uh, in, in this context, it, it totally collapses. But this is because uh, the, the, the piloting scheme and, and, and the channel estimation schemes make the, the wrong, uh, they are mismatched the assumptions. Yeah, interesting. I mean, so, you know, uh, before I read your paper or other this way, when I saw your paper and saw the title, I was like, well, so where's the catch here? Because I understand that, I mean, both OFDM and OTFS are just different ways of filling the time frequency plane, right? I mean, you got T seconds and B hertz wide chunk of time frequency space, then you can squeeze in B times T degrees of freedom and that's right. it uh, and then there might be advantages i mean to the, the otfs in terms of if the channel is really sparse but then i thought like well however um we could do that with ofdm as well i mean just ofdm with the right type of signal processing would be as good and that's basically what your paper shows yeah um then there is this point on um, the the loss due to the um, guard interval or the cyclic prefix but to be fair i think ofdm you could you could eliminate the cyclic prefix or you could replace it with a zero prefix you could do various tricks there which do come at the processing complexity but there's nothing nothing precludes us in principle from scrapping the cyclic prefix and applying a correspondingly more advanced equalizer at the receiver absolutely. side right so, so in a way this all comes down to processing complexity and of course that's a relevant consideration uh-huh. to make yes um, but there seems to be no fundamental advantage really of the specific modulation format that OTFS uses. I mean, again, you can achieve the same thing with OFDM. It's just that the signal processing will have to be adapted accordingly, and that's it. So I think the real question here is, are the channel responses really sparse in the time in the, in the Doppler time, uh, time delay Doppler domain? And uh, to some extent, to me, that still stands to reason. I mean, it might depend on the environment we're in. And there's also this effect that, the, well, the wider bandwidth you have, the more you like scatterers, you and un- multipath components you uncover and so forth. So um, is that, <laughs> or, or do you agree with my assessment here? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I agree on the fact that uh, relying on uh, assumptions, a strong assumption, strong priors on uh, on the channels uh, is, is risky. Um, uh, at the same time, I have to say that uh, um, uh, there are techniques and conditions where one can actually force a certain level of sparsity. For example, um, 
take, take uh, the, the, the case of, uh, say, millimeter waves uh, or even, you know, uh, say, very high frequencies. Uh, where uh, so uh, something that we have seen also experimentally uh, uh, recently, we uh, I'm working with in in a in a, a German funded six uh, G research hub uh, where many other universities and research centers are are involved uh, and. Uh, and so we work also with people who do measurements and experiments and have measurement equipment, uh, antenna arrays and, and things like this. And uh, we have uh, noticed that uh, the uh, effect uh, of uh, beamforming uh, is, uh, is not only creating antenna gain, is also basically killing the multiple. So uh, imagine you have a two-sided beam forming, two antennas that are, are, the beams are aligned. All the multipath around uh, is basically destroyed by, by because they go in, into, into side lobes and they're attenuated by tens of dBs, right? Mm. Uh, which means yeah, I see your point. So, I mean, what you're suggesting is that um, the, if you have a large MIMO array, then the channel after application of beamforming becomes a lot more sparse, potentially, in the yes. delay Doppler domain. If you have this uh, type of directional propagation and uh, uh, have a, a good way of aligning the, the beams, uh, and this automatically will make the channel more and more frequency frequency flat. Now, uh, uh, if the channel was perfectly frequency flat, we don't even need uh, OTFS. Actually, uh, I think that uh, we should reconsider single carrier, <laughs> good old single carrier with one tap equalization, maybe. And, yes, and, I mean, there's also the PAPR yes, and all exactly. that, Yes, exactly. You right? solve so. the PAPR problem and uh, you go back to, uh, to, to the basics with, with a simple time and frequency recovery is probably good enough. Now, where, where OTFS may be interesting is when you uh, do macrodiversity. Imagine now you have a receiver and you have a few... Uh, radio heads, each one has a big array, and uh, uh, at say 150 gigahertz, they are like uh, they are beamforming to the same receiver. Now, uh, it's impossible to 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 have to be like coherent in the sense that uh, in the sense that we do uh, you know um, like joint process in the baseband. So uh, you will have the superposition of let's say three copies of the same signal that come with a different phase and, and uh, maybe a different uh, Doppler shift because the receiver is moving and therefore if it is approaching in one direction, maybe it's, uh, it's uh, going away in the other direction. So you have a positive Doppler shift here for one beam, a negative Doppler shift in the other beam. And then of course there will be some uh, difference in delay just for the propagation. Uh, so at the end you are creating a channel through macro diversity, which is inherently exactly what OTFS likes. Mm. Uh, well, OTFS or OFTM with appropriate processing that assumes this underlying sparsity, right? Yes, yes, I agree. And interestingly, uh, this idea of uh, macro diversity and uh, looking at this uh, say the induced channel uh, is already quite investigated in uh, satellites. 
uh, I am aware of a project with the European Space Agency where they look at constellation of low orbit satellites and, uh, and because of the blocking problem, uh, you would like that every receiver on the ground is uh, in a line of sight with, uh, let's say, three or four satellites that are moving around. In uh, So one is at the horizon, one is on the top, one is on the other side. And, and then if these uh, satellites are, are, are sending uh, the same signal, you have this macro diversity to counter blocking, but you have the problem that uh, propagation, so they come at different delays and with uh, with different uh, uh, frequency shifts. And then is how to recombine them. Uh, uh, basically, this system create an artificial sparse channel in the Doppler delay domain, which can be very bad if it is not properly addressed because it is a time and frequency selective uh, in, in, a, in a very bad way. But again, with the proper processing or the proper you know, uh, waveform and, and piloting schemes, uh, uh, you can do co coherent combining the receiver and then get this, this sort of uh, macro diversity gains. Right, so to conclude here, I mean, what you're saying and where I think I agree is that there are specific circumstances under which we might really have a an effective channel impulse response which is sparse in the delayed Doppler domain right. and then either OTFS flat out or OFDM with appropriate channel estimation that you exploits the sparsity structure and so forth could could definitely I mean bring gains as compared to let's say conventional yeah. channel estimation and signal processing that makes no prior assumptions on the channels. Yeah. Uh, having said that, I still have as a general attitude some reservation towards uh, signal processing schemes for communications that rely heavily on prior assumptions on the propagation channel. I'm not sure, Emil, whether you would agree with this. But... Um, I think we uh, have a, a next thing to discuss that sort of have that, that, that same kind of potential issue when it comes to strong priors. I mean, on the one hand, you, you want to identify priors information that exist in reality so that, and exploit them to the, uh, as far as we can, but uh, also don't overemphasize some things. So, so one thing that I think both me and Giuseppe have been uh, working a lot on is to utilize the spatial correlation that the fading is having. So if the multipaths are not uniformly distributed in all directions, there will be some preferred channel directions that will be appearing in your statistics. And I know that uh, you have a number of papers on the concept you call joint spatial division and multiplexing. Yeah, it's the M, which if I uh, explain it correctly, is like you look at the area that the base station is covering, you divide it into clusters or bins, and you say that users that are in this area, in one specific area, have roughly the same spatial channel correlation. So you shouldn't try to serve more than one of them at a time. And then you, you pick one person in each bin, you spatially multiplex them, and that makes uh, sort of life much easier in terms of the signal processing. And I have a paper called Massive Mime Has Unlimited Capacity, where we are sort of utilizing spatial correlation to let users with sufficiently different spatial correlation use the same ch pilot signals, uh, and then we can separate them anyway due to spatial correlation. And, that really opens up the question, uh, is this a too strong prior assumption that 
we know the spatial correlation or is spatial correlation even something that exists in reality do we have uh, stationary channels uh, and how large is really the region where you can say uh, if you move around this region you will have uh, the same spatial correlation uh, what is your view on that <laughs> yeah so it's very i mean the, the whole story is very funny i, I would say that uh, uh, you know as people who do research in this field uh, uh, on an academic level uh, we need to publish and uh, when you run out of uh, topics well then you come up with some other ideas right so it's uh, it's funny because uh, spatial correlation was uh, something that uh, at some point people start considering uh, because of course you know uh, well the, the standard models the standard models are treated in uh, say uh, random matrix theory uh, for mimo uh, is always uh, iid iid uh, no special correlation then somebody says no actually for such a large array iid doesn't make any sense because you have a limited angular spread when you do the model you see that there is special correlation and so people in in uh, random matrix theory started developing fancier and fancier uh, theorems and uh, that uh, handle these complicated uh, sinr expressions and mc uh, estimation error expressions with uh, spatial correlation, there are functions of, of, of the covariance matrices of the channel vectors and so on and so forth. And then of course, uh, as uh, uh, what happens is that uh, the, the next step is how we can exploit this, right? And, and then uh, works like uh, the, my work on JSDM or your work on, on, on uh, unlimited capacity uh, comes up because there we exploit let's say the diversity in uh, spatial correlation uh, is not only diversity in the sense of independent channels, but also because the channels have different statistics. And the fact that channels have different statistics, I think is, uh, is um, I would say, almost a, a, a truism. It, is, uh, it would be very, very uh, strange if it was the opposite, if you know, in a, in a different environments where you have a different scattering configuration, where depending on the, where the user are, and uh, if they all have the same statistics, it means that the local uh, uh, propagation doesn't matter. Only only the local propagation around the the, the, the base station matters. But of course, a tower-mounted base station is probably has not much uh, scattering around it. Uh, is more like what happens in the premises of the users and in, in, in the direction. So it, it is kind of logical that uh, users placed in different places would have different uh, uh, different channel statistics. Um, now, the problem then uh, how well you can exploit this and how diverse these things are. Well, if you believe in the semi say, ray tracing geometric models, uh, models that are actually used by 3GPP and they're encoded in uh, channel simulators that everybody uh, keep as a sort of uh, ground truth in many standard uh, contributions and uh, even uh, theoretical papers, like for example, the channel models that you find in the famous Quadriga channel simulator, uh, well, uh, yeah, those those uh, channels are based on a superposition of planar waves with a certain uh, angular distribution. And you, if 
if you uh, have uh, these joint angular supports, by definition, uh, you're going to have orthogonal subspaces for, for, for this user. It's a, uh, for or a, or a quasi orthogonal subspaces, the, the modulo the discretization of the angle domain due to, due to the fact that. Uh, you know the array resolution, but for enough for large enough uh, an antennas, you have this. Uh, then the next question is uh, how you know these statistics. Uh, so these statistics could be learned, could be uh, estimated. Uh, uh, nobody gives them for free, although you know you say okay, it's long term, but long term here means. Uh, maybe on a time scale of seconds instead of milliseconds, it's still not so easy to uh, have an accurate, uh, uh, you know, covariance or subspace estimation when you have, uh, uh, let's say, uh, a couple of seconds or, 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 or window on which this this uh, doesn't change because you need a lot of samples. You know, we are talking about very high dimensional uh, 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 covariances. So you need a, a number of samples that it should be sufficient. So it's not, it's not so obvious how well this can be learned. It's, it, it's also maybe a possibility. Now I, I see more and more works that uh, are based on uh, using say machine learning techniques to learn the statistics. Uh, uh, for various purposes. Uh, uh, um, so I would say, in generally speaking, uh, I, I think that uh, schemes that uh, try to take advantage of this uh, diversity in uh, correlation uh, of the channels have clear advantage whether how well you can do it in practice is, is uh, still a little bit of a question. I would also say one thing is that uh, um, rely on uh, angular sparsity may be risky. For example, if I want to do like what is called a compressed pilot, so use a short pilot dimension, because in any case, I have, a, 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 I know that I, I, I can, I can uh, you know, rely on uh, on uh, some sort of compressed sensing technique. The channel is lower dimensional than it looks like because there's a, a sort of reduced uh, uh, angular diversity. Uh, uh, it can be risky because these, uh, uh, especially compressed sensing techniques, collapse when uh, when the hypothesis of sparsity are not uh, are not satisfied. At the same time, there are techniques now that uh, uh, can actually induce sparsity. For example, you can do what is called a sparsifying precoder that uh, essentially selects only uh, an, a, a, a subset of, of, of the beams. You decompose the channel in the beam space, and then you select a set of beams that is good enough to serve your users, but low enough to have effectively a sparse channel in, in the angular domain. So if you know that your pattern dimension is, I don't know, 10, well, you are going to select uh, a 10 dimensional, uh, at most 10 dimensional channel for each user by selecting the set of beams. So uh, the, these are a little bit uh, yet to, to be seen, uh, not, not so mature, I would say, at least in, in terms of applications. I know that industry is extremely reluctant in, uh, doing anything that requires like a long-term estimation across the blocks. It, 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 they, exactly for say robustness or simplicity, 
They want everything is like a you know block by block. You get what you get. You compute your precoder from your pilots, and that's it. Uh, something that accumulates, remembers, uh, keep track of the users. Uh, they say, "Oh, uh, <laughs> they are very skeptical mm -hmm. about that." So I, I think that's rather yeah I think that's rather consistent with like my mindset I tend to favor like agnostic designs that don't make strong prior assumptions and that really explore all the dimensions of the pilot space don't assume sparsity and so forth um, then obviously I mean if you do have sparsity if you do have channel fading correlation and so forth and you either know this magically somehow or you can estimate it reliably you can gain uh, in performance. Another point I think which is worth making here is the distinction between reliance on a specific model for the purpose of algorithm design versus using realistic models in performance evaluation, right? I mean, nothing precludes us from designing our signal processing algorithms relying on independent fading, for example. But then when we evaluate performance to make predictions about where the system, how, how the system will, will perform in, in reality, we could certainly plug in our favorite 3D PP or whatever <laughs> model there with all the correlation and, and all, all, all the other features, right? So, so the question, I guess, is where to position ourselves on the scale of like completely agnostic design, assume independent Rayleigh across all dimensions as one extreme to systems that assume some form of correlation to a system that maybe learns as they go along. And my uh, my preference, I think, is mainly towards agnostic systems that should work irrespective of the cir propagation circumstances. We could throw out anywhere and they just work. Uh, of course, that robustness does come at the cost. And uh, it's quite interesting to hear, Giuseppe, your comment here that uh, folks in the industry also tend to favor designs that don't rest too strongly on prior assumptions and on learning and remembering um, between yeah, different the, I, I don't so know forth. if it's true in general. This is, in my experience, every time uh, we came up and discussed these things with the, with the industry, uh, I noticed uh, a certain reluctance. Uh, uh, mm. uh, yeah, I think what I have experienced when talking pe people in the industry is that they probably don't want to have like extra signaling in the system in order to just, uh, yeah, measuring these type of things. But then they might have their own proprietary implementation where they they happen to know who is a line of sight user and who is a non-line of sight user because they they have some tests that they are doing in their product, but they, uh, yeah, they don't talk so much about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, yeah. So, I'm sure we are doing on time, and Giuseppe. Feel like we could continue um, for another hour here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we are reaching an hour recording now. So maybe we should have some some short questions here towards the end. So, so looking beyond uh, MIMO things, uh, what do you think would be some new fundamental things in 6G that we haven't seen before? Is it things like reconfigurable intelligent surfaces, smart caching, terahertz? What do you think people should explore the most? Oof, that, that's a... <laughs> Short answer. That's a very difficult question. You know, you know what they say, it's, it's very, very difficult to make prediction, especially about the future. Um, so I don't know. It's uh, uh, certainly uh, this. Uh, it, it seems to me that uh, as 
we go to higher frequencies and uh, uh, and, and and therefore channel models become uh, less certain. They require more characterization, more understanding. Uh, it seems that uh, um, um, it, what is necessary is also a better understanding of the hardware. Uh, for example, uh, uh, these uh, uh, RIS or RIS, I never understood what is the acronym, the Intelligent <laughs> Computer System or, or Computer Anyway, I, 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 I call them RIS because IRS in, in the US is the Internal Revenue Service, which is taxes and is uh, somehow uh, uh, not <laughs> so <laughs> such a happy thought. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, the, the, these are definitely uh, uh, interesting uh, de development, potential developments uh, uh, that uh, um, uh, that uh, may you know may, may give like a new perspective may solve certain problems of uh, 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 line of sight propagation or uh, maybe also manufacturing a, a very uh, large and and steerable and uh, uh, large gain steerable antennas uh, in the old days, these things uh, were, were called reflector rays, and there is a uh, books in uh, written in the seventies on reflector rays. Now, of course, uh, reflector rays would just reflect uh, with with a certain uh, they're not reconfigurable. Uh, but uh, you know, there is certainly something there that uh, should be rediscovered. What, my point is that. Uh, we need probably uh, uh, to work closer uh, to people who design hardware and understand uh, the hardware capabilities, for example, power consumption uh, of A to B conversion, uh, 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 power consumption in, in, uh, in uh, power amplifiers and, and these components. When you go to terrors, everything becomes uh, uh, quite complicated uh, and our usual power budget that, uh, you know, information theoretic where, where power is transmit power uh, uh, is not, is not uh, uh, significant anymore. Neglecting power in, uh, in the electronics and in the processing uh, uh, may lead to, uh, to wrong conclusions. Um, uh, so I think that, uh, yes, certainly a higher, say high frequencies, and uh, antenna design, including uh, uh, intelligent reflective surfaces, is, is is a hot topic. About caching, of course, I am you know a strong supporter of caching. My ERC project is on coded caching, and uh, uh, I, I, I am a, a co-author of many papers on on the topic. What I frankly don't believe it will ever happen is uh, the caching uh, with physical layer. So uh, there are a uh, line of works that, including some of mine, I have to take the blame, I, I, I'm not innocent in this aspect, that uh, somehow design physical layer in the assumption of caching. So coded caching and mine, coded caching and interference channels, coded caching. The cache aided interference management, all these things. 
um, elegant stuff, uh, difficult stuff, interesting problems. What I don't believe is that a system will ever be standardized where the physical layer is designed in the assumption of having caching somewhere. Uh, I think that if caching has a future, uh, well, it has already a present. Caching is already used, by the way, but it's not coded caching. It's not a multi-user. It is more like, a, you know, the standard, standard things that is done in the, in the network and then maybe it's done at the individual clients, but uh, not, not, very, not, not, not very interesting from our viewpoint. Um, but uh, I see a possible future for code caching as an overlay technique that uh, happens essentially above IP. Uh, whatever happens below IP, uh, meaning uh, multi-access and physical layer, uh, I don't think that this can be influenced by caching. Uh, uh, assuming that you can cancel interference because you have cached some files already here and there, or you design a MIMO system that assumes uh, caching and therefore you will get a certain uh, expanded combined degrees of freedom of uh, multi-user MIMO plus the caching game is nice, theoretically pleasing, but I don't think that this has any future uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, practical implementations. So uh, nevertheless, I'm, I'm saying, you know, for certain applications, uh, especially, especially uh, on-demand on video streaming, which is still one of the killer applications, uh, the uh, adoption of coded caching uh, in this overlay uh, manner, provided that one can combine IP multicasting with uh, multicasting at the physical layer, then it, it becomes very interesting. And multicasting at the physical layer doesn't assume to merge caching and uh, the physical layer in this more intimate uh, uh, re relation. It's just that uh, coded caching creates packets that are useful simultaneously for a number of users. And, uh, and one should be able to take advantage of this. For example, you can do coded caching on top of uh, services like EMBMS. So have like these broadcast services but instead of sending, I don't know, 10 TV channels in real time, you could handle uh, a video on demand with coded caching on top of these things. So uh, this may actually stimulate some better multicasting techniques that at the moment are quite neglected uh, uh, to, 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 this could be implemented as a physical layer, as an, as a physical layer option to do multicasting. Then on top of that, you can do whatever you want. In particular, if you want to do uh, on-demand, uh, uh, say, uh, content delivery, uh, then you use coded caching on top of that. This may be an, an interesting direction because I think multicasting has been a little bit neglected in uh, uh, in, uh, in in the development. Yes. Yeah, interesting to hear your perspective on caching. I think that's a topic where I myself probably don't have much of intuition, I'm sure, Emil, whether mm -hmm. you worked on that. But I also do agree in your last remark here that multicasting is something that's been a little bit neglected. And there's certainly uh, topics here, even in rather pure communications theory related to 6G that <laughs> still remain open, which is good to know, of course, for all of us uh, working in this field. 
Um, so I feel like there are many other topics that we uh, that I'd like to discuss <laughs> with you, Giuseppe. Do uh, it might be time here, perhaps to wrap up. I'm not sure if there is something final you'd like to say um, uh, about well the past or the future. Let's say in applied information theory. I mean, we did talk about 6G and some technologies that are underway there, right? With terahertz and yeah. large DMIMO arrays, caching. There's also, of course, many other things, right? Like passive communication with passive energy neutral devices and semantic communications and so forth that, that people work on. Uh, but back to like your core subject area, information theory, uh, there are also many important uh, theoretical developments that have happened in the last maybe 10, 20 years, I'm thinking of finite block length information theory, for example. I mean, there's all the multi-user memory we already talked about, yeah. but in addition to that, there's the finite block length theory and there seem to be other things now. Um, emerging grand uh, algorithms for, for decoding of linear channel codes, for example. Is there something here in this context that you would like to highlight and say, hey, look, this is the future or this is the most exciting thing that you ought to be like investing and and starting to work on <laughs> right <laughs> now <laughs> <laughs> well uh yeah i mean for sure i mean looking looking back in the in the in the last uh, let's say 10 20 years there have been a lot of amazing results uh that uh, have somehow closed or almost closed long-standing open problems. Uh, and some of these results have really a lot of um, interest and impact on a theoretical level, maybe not so much at the, I would say, an implementation and practical level. I, I would say, for example, interference alignment. It's a great idea, uh, it's a fantastic idea, uh, that uh, somehow, in a certain sense, shows that the interference channel is intrinsically very different from other channels that uh, we are more used to, and also explains that it's a very difficult beast to treat, right? But practically, for the Gaussian case, so for the, say, the wireless channel case, interference alignment has led to basically nothing. Uh, in contrast, interference alignment ideas have turned very powerful uh, and uh, ha have given very powerful results in other problems that are intrinsically discrete, like, for example, interference alignment in the finite fields, uh, schemes based on interference alignment have been used for distributed, uh, say, coding for distributed computing, uh, coding for for storage, uh, 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 various uh, various uh, um, uh, approaches in, uh, say, private information retrieval, uh, and 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 so on and so forth. Um, so-called, you know, gradient coding and uh, for 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 uh, you know information uh, theory secure uh, aggregation, like uh, you know, in, in in federated learning. So um, I would say, um, uh, and 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 it's also 
uh, this explains also certain certain uh, uh, factors. Doing interference alignment in the finite fields is one thing because you know finite fields are discrete, uh, and doing interference alignment in the, in, in the complex domain requires uh, a level of uh, transient information. Uh, accuracy that is typically not possible. And then there are other results that show that, in fact, when, uh, uh, you know, depending on the, on the, on the level of, of, of accuracy of the channel state information, you are going to lose the degrees of freedom that they are promised uh, by interference alignment. So uh, it was a big expectation, great theoretical, you know, advance, but in terms of, uh, practical consequences to find a system that uses interference alignment and actually uh, gets some advantage with respect to uh, other more, more, more conventional techniques is very, very difficult. Um, in contrast, there are other, other uh, domains, like, uh, for example, in, in, the, in the domain of channel coding, you know, going to LDPC and polar codes, and then understanding the, the uh, performance limits of uh, finite length coding, uh, for delay uh, limited uh, uh, regimes uh, has been really, uh, really like a big breakthrough. So there was this, this sort of uh, uh, false theorem that, uh, you know, uh, uh, is very, uh, that basically capacity is not attainable in practice because, uh, yeah, there, there is almost all codes are good, but apart from the one that you can construct explicitly. But now we know that at least in, in, in import, certain important cases uh, are very useful for applications. This is not true. Uh, uh, we can go really close to capacity with uh, very clever and, and affordable uh, computationally feasible algorithms. So uh, this has been uh, really uh, an amazing progress that uh, has immediately reflected into, into implementation because now we have uh, LDPCs and polar codes pretty much everywhere. So, I would say it's uh, yeah there are, there are a lot of a lot of uh, uh, interesting results that uh, that uh, with with significant impact other that uh, for which the impact maybe is not yet uh, so significant in practice but uh, may may become significant or maybe uh, also the impact may be unexpected like uh, you know the interference alignment idea uh, maybe not really useful or, or impactful in the interference channels as we know it, but has led to a lot of other developments uh, in, the, in the context of uh, more like network coding type of problems that, uh, that uh, have, have opened a lot of very interesting research directions. So uh, I would say, yeah, it's, it's a little bit difficult to, you know, to say, oh, people should work on this and that because it's also a matter of taste, mm. right? <laughs> <laughs> But uh, certainly there are there are a lot of there are a lot of interesting topics. It's a it's a, it's a, it's a very alive uh, uh, research area. And what maybe as a concluding remark, what I, I may say is that uh, um, periodically coding and information theory have been declared mature and then dead, and periodically they have been uh, 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 no. Uh, found new uh, new topics and a new energy and new interest. So uh, maybe now we are a little bit suffering from uh, the fact that uh, other domains like machine learning has become so prominent. Uh, but I think that uh, 
at some point, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's like a, a revolving uh, uh, issue, and then we will we will go back on top at some point. There will be new interests for problems that. Uh, when people realize that machine learning is nice but does not solve all the problems, maybe uh, they will be more motivated to look at the theory first. Yes. Trying to, to uh, say, throw a neural network. Indeed, I would agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> say, Emil. Yeah. No, this is a great way of, of ending this episode, I think, and see that there are both new problems will arise in information theory and some of the things that have been developed over the last 10, 20 years will also make it into to reality in the next decade. So, mm. great. Agree. So, with that, thanks a lot, Giuseppe. This has been really educational and fun, I think, to have this conversation. Yes, uh, me too. Thanks again for uh, being with us on the podcast. And uh, thanks, Emil. Thank you. And see you all next time. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.